Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And this one will get real on if the Astros can really win a title. Plus, what's it going to take for the Texans to win their first game? And later in the show, we're joined by our favorite Houston Cougar insider on the potential move to the Big 12 and on their opener against Texas Tech. Before I fire things up, excited to tell you that this show is brought to you by BetUS.com, America's favorite sports book. You'll want to hear about our exclusive discount for all you fans of the show. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, on paper, the Astros should be giving me championship vibes. But on the field, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, I'm not seeing it either, Robert. I mean, I certainly think that they will make the playoffs. I mean, they they would have to have the the total collapse of the last two centuries for that to happen. But, but, you know, I felt all year really, you know, as far as going deep into the playoffs. Yeah. I'm not seeing it. And, and, uh, you know, besides the offensive struggles, Robert, what, what is really worrying me about the starting pitching is that they tend to get in trouble the first inning or, you know, in Framber Valdez's case on Saturday, the second inning, you know, getting behind early is just not a good thing in any situation, but certainly when you get into the postseason where every run counts and every inning counts, you can't afford to keep doing that. And, and that's one of the reasons that you set up your starting rotation to go shorter innings. You know, if, if you, instead of going six, seven innings, you know, when you throw 25, 30 pitches in the first inning or, you know, or the second inning, it's just going to, it's going to shorten your stint in four or five innings if you're lucky. I'm going to run a couple of numbers at you because you're talking about winning close games in the Astros, 15 and 16 in one grand games this year. You're going to have close games in the playoffs. They weren't unreal in their championship year, 19 and 13 in one run games, but just something to keep an eye on. And you keep hoping they'd start gaining momentum in the second half of the season. But since the all-star break, 24 and 21 is the record. Although if you look back to the 17 season, they were an unspectacular 41 and 32, so maybe they can uh, do a little bit better towards the end of September. I guess the stuff that concerns me the most, though, is this pitching staff. You talked about it, Stephen. The bullpen, despite all the deadline moves, seems to fall apart on a consistent basis. Somebody is going to screw something up. They're going to be a weak link in there somewhere. And then the starters, it, it, they just don't have one or two guys you can lean on, like Verlander or Cole or Oswalt or going back to last year even. Fromber with the way he was pitching there's just not that guy that you go we can count on him in the playoffs he's going to get it done he's going to give you seven innings it's going to take a little bit of stress off the bullpen and and going through all these series you need that guy that you can lean on yeah absolutely and I think we would all agree that if the Astros hadn't gotten Verlander in 2017 there may not be a World Series title and as you said they don't have that guy you know they they have players who are, are pitchers who are trying to imitate that sort of thing, but but they're not doing it. You know, Robert, the, the saving grace for the Astros right now is that the Oakland A's aren't playing any better. I mean, Oakland should have overtaken them. Uh, you know, the, the month of August, the Astros were barely over 500. They should have probably relinquished the lead in the AL West, but because the A's were about as unspectacular, <laughs> you know, the Astros are still, you know, have several games of a lead. Now, Seattle is the team that you're going to have to start worrying about. They're coming up. So it's going to be an interesting September. 
especially if the Astros can't get it going and get hot going into the postseason, which, Robert, you know, that that is my hope is that this will be the month. If the Astros can just catch fire at the end of the season and go into the playoffs on some momentum, then maybe you and I can have a different conversation a month from now when the postseason starts. But right now, as we both agree, we're not seeing that. You talk about Seattle. They're they're in second place now. It's four and a half game lead yep. for the Astros over Seattle. Oakland's now in third place at five and a half games. Yeah, Seattle's the team. And the Astros, frankly, they helped him out. They gave him Abraham Toro. He's an all-star. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, when that trade was made, how many Seattle fans and even a lot of the players were openly critical about them getting rid of, of uh, Kendall Graveman. But it's amazing. It just And then it goes to show you have to let trades play themselves out. It may look weird on paper or bad on paper at the very beginning, but you've got to let it play out. And, I mean, at least to this point, as we're recording this, it obviously hasn't hurt the Mariners because they are the team that is on the rise at this point and could even overtake the A's. And they might be the team that threatens the Astros for the division lead. Speaking of letting it play out, I'm going to give you some true or false statements. And I'm going to get your thoughts on this. And well, let's start with that. Let's start with Kendall Graveman and Phil Maton. Both of those guys have looked like the back of their baseball card with the Astros. And Pedro Baez apparently had arm issues that didn't seem to be vetted correctly when he signed with Houston None of this, true or false statement, none of this is a positive sign for James Click's evaluation process. Uh, at this point, I'd have to say true. I, I think in Graveman's case, yeah, he has struggled lately. I mean, he, he looked lights out when he first came here, but but he is starting to regress to the mean, as they say. Uh, Maton has definitely been a disappointment. Baez, yeah, I, I kind of wonder how dig, how deeply did they dig into that situation before they signed me. So, yep, I'd have to say true at this moment. True or false, with modern-day baseball rules, and I'm specifically referring to three-batter minimum, Brooks Raley does not belong on a major league roster. Versus lefties, his OPS, Stephen, 525. Versus righties, his OPS, an awful 842. Oh, true, absolutely. I would go with Taylor. If, if you're going to have a lefty out of the bullpen, you got to go with Taylor over, over Raley. Yeah, just get rid of him. I, Dusty takes all the blame on this, Stephen, but let's be honest here. James Click's leaving him on the roster. It's not Dusty's fault. He's got to use the pitchers that he's got because you can't just run out the same guys every single time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dusty's got, he has to use what he has. Um, you know, at least he, he does have the luxury of having two lefties. Of course, Taylor, you know, it's kind of iffy with him too sometimes. If you put him in certain situations, he can succeed, but yeah, Rayleigh has just, he hasn't been there no matter what situation you put him in. True or false, the Astros are a clutch hitting team. Is that a true or false statement, Stephen? Uh, that's a false statement. Uh, certainly lately, they have left tons of runners on base. You know, even when they've been winning, uh, they've still squandered numerous opportunities. And, and that's something too, I think in 2017, they did much better with. They they had the clutch hitting you know, especially when it came to the postseason, that's what got them where they were. But no, at this moment, that is a false statement. I'm going to throw some crazy numbers at you because when you look at it overall, the Astros OPS with runners in scoring position is 802. So that's great. But what is crazy and what I really get concerned about is that their OPS with runners in scoring position in late and close situations 
is only 675. So that's a hundred plus a hundred drop in their OPS in those situations. Their batting average is 236. They were 14 for 66 with runners in scoring position during this nine game road trip. 14 for 66. It was a bad road trip. It, it might be recency bias, Stephen, but I, I looked at those late and close situations over the course of the season. And to me, that feels like what we've really seen with them. They just can't get big hits. And you see it in one run games. You see it in extra innings. It's the same, same, same problem. Well, and that's one of the reasons they're below 500, you know, in those close situations, because a lot of those, you know, a, a lot of the comebacks are going to occur in the later innings. I mean, that's just how it goes. And they have not been able to do that. And, I, you know, you know, even in the 2004 and 2005 teams, like the 2005 team that made the World Series, one of the things that they were so known for was the ability to come back in the late innings and, and just pull things out of a hat that you would never believe in some games. So that's a big deal. And that's one of the reasons that, yeah, they're under 500 in those situations because of just such a poor batting average, you know, in the last two, three innings of a ball game. Let's get to one more true false that I've got for you. Now, this is, uh, this is might be a little bit bad timing considering how Sunday's game ended, but Ryan Stanek is the Rodney Dangerfield of the Astros. That's my true false here, Stephen. He gets no respect from Astros fans, even though the league is batting 186 against him with a 643 OPS. Boy, that looks great. Look at the other Astros numbers. Is it because he looks like he fell off the back of a pickup truck in Alabama? I, I, I think it's time we put a little respect to, to Stanek's name. I, I know he doesn't look like the guy, but uh, overall, he's been pretty darn good. Yeah, I'd have to say that is true. Uh, he he certainly I, he has to probably be the most underrated pitcher on the Astros staff. No one's really talking about him. He was a a quiet sign, I guess, uh, and and he's quietly kept this bullpen from being even worse than it is. <laughs> he had some struggles, I think, in you know in the middle part of the season. But every pitcher's going to go through that. I mean, honestly, especially a bullpen pitcher when you don't know when you're going to pitch. But he's pulled it together, and I'd say for the most part this season. He's been one of the quiet heroes that has come through when Dusty's called on him, no matter what the situation may be. And I remember there was one game that Dusty threw him out there when Dusty was just like, I I've got no choice. We, we got screwed by a bunch of different things. And Ryan had to take a beating out on the mound, which is not something that he should have had to do. And, and that skewed his ERA. It skews a little bit the numbers. So keep that in mind when you look at Orion Stanek, you know, we're going to hold our segment this week in Astros history until the end of the show. So if you're listening, you need a more, a little bit more Astros fix. We're not done, but let's move to the Texans because, hey, we're almost there. It's almost uh, week one of the season here. It's just a few days away. Um, Stephen, not sure there were any real surprises in the Texans cuts last week, but I spotted an early terrible trend for Nick Casario and stay with me on this one because this is complicated, but the Texans cut cornerback Kadar Holman, who they spent a seventh round pick on add that to a seventh round pick Casario spent on Ryan Izzo, who was released add that to a sixth for a seventh pick swap and the Ryan Finley deal who was dumped months ago. So, Steve, what I'm saying is the only difference between GM Bill O'Brien and GM Nick Casario, one of them waste early round draft picks 
and the other junk's the late ones. <laughs> well, and, and what gets me, Robert, is that you and I were talking about how he seems to love to stockpile these late round picks. Nick Casario, I'm talking about. Uh, but yeah, as you just pointed out, that's three guys right there that you've cut. And, you know, you gave up those late round picks for. So, I, yeah, I, I'm scratching my head on some of this. I mean, a lot of people would say, well, it's late round picks. What's the big deal? You know, you never know what some of these guys can turn into. You know, a draft pick is a draft pick. If you have them, you want to use them wisely. I don't care if it's, you know, back when the NFL draft had, I don't know, 20 rounds. You know, there there were some late round picks back then. Um, I, I can think of. Danny Abramowitz with the New Orleans Saints. He was a very late round pick, and that was when they had a whole bunch of rounds. So, yeah, you know, every pick is valuable. You don't want to just waste it. And and I certainly don't think that Casario is just intentionally wasting picks. He's obviously got a reason for what he's doing. Uh, I just haven't figured it out yet, Robert, and apparently you haven't either. It's the evaluation process. And look, it's cheap labor. This is cheap labor in the NFL. You need these guys that are late round picks occasionally because what they do is give you somebody that's going to be there for the next five years that you're not going to have to pay. There's slotted slotted numbers there. And when you get an undrafted guy, for example, yeah, you might sign him, you get him for a year or two, but what if he starts performing and then you got to throw a bunch of money at him to keep him around? Whereas these guys, hey, you, you got slotted money. It's not expensive. It's, again, cheap labor. Right. And then you add, you know, a lot of the veterans that Casario signed during the offseason have, you know, the one-year contract. So, you know, they're, they're looking for something to prove. But what do you do beyond that? So, yeah, it's an interesting conundrum. But all of those players you talked about, they're all gone. And let's talk about how terrible that 2018 draft was. I mean, total garbage. This was just three years ago. Kiki QT finally gets the axe. He was part of that draft. The only ones left just three years later are Justin Reed and Jordan Akins of everybody that they picked. I mean, it wasn't a draft where they had early picks. You know, there was no first and second round, but, you know, they had a lot of guys. Martinez Rankin is gone. QT, like I mentioned, Edgia Four, Jordan Thomas, Peter Columbayi, Jermaine Kelly, they're all released. And this is just, it's a long history of just, not just the fact that they miss on these guys, but they're gone within like a year, two, three years. They're all gone. Yeah, that's a very disturbing trend. And and of course, we can't pin that on Casario, obviously, because he wasn't here in 2018. But it, I mean, I'm, you're looking for some sort of turnaround in that regard, Robert. Well, you know, a very short sample size, obviously, but we're we're not seeing it so far. Yeah, and QT did not really surprise me. I, I thought maybe he would have been cut, say, a year before. And it also causes concern because the Texans already have issues at wide receiver with depth. You know, you've got a couple of guys hurt. And I'm sure that before the Jacksonville game, you're probably going to see some more moves, you know, to add some depth to a position like wide receiver. We're just not sure yet. And let me just say, I, I was a fan of the QT choice because he has – really good speed and you thought maybe something can happen. And I don't know if that was just a total misfire. It's just a guy that he, he didn't work out because of fumbling issues, which maybe you couldn't see in, in, in a tape or you wouldn't know that he was going to do that in the NFL. Uh, Justin Reed, I was excited about. I think everybody was excited about Justin Reed. Right. Yes, he's still a starter, but it, it's a weak, weak secondary. And Justin Reed is not somebody that gets me excited anymore. Jordan Aikens, I, I, I was never a big fan of that. He, he was an older guy at the time. It just didn't seem like that was somebody that 
you want to take a chance on because, you know, by the time he was to be any good, he's about 30 years old. Uh, Martinez Rankin, I think a lot of people thought that was going to be a real bad pick, and, and it was. Uh, these other guys, it's you know, you just you just totally missed on on pretty much all of them. Edgy of four, there were some injuries that you couldn't foresee because he looked good at first, but yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. that's what happened with with the Texans. And I don't know, Stephen. I guess we'll move on to Jacksonville and 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 how do you beat Jacksonville, Stephen? Because we got to figure out some way that they can do this. And I, I say they got to turn over the rookie quarterback. Trevor Lawrence and get points off of it. The Texans offense is going to stink. So that's the way to do it, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's the way to do it. Um, You know, maybe they could just have all of their first and second stringers held hostage somewhere and they they can't make it to the game and they just have nothing but, you know, third stringers and have to activate their whole practice squad. You know, maybe then the Texans will have a chance to to do something. Uh, I mean, you know, against rookie quarterbacks playing their first game, you would think, you know, you think history is on your side, but this is the Texans. And regardless of what, you know, may have transpired in the uh, preseason, it's the regular season now. You know, it, everything is official. It counts. And you you can't just take everything that you saw in the preseason and say, well, Texans look pretty good. You know, maybe they can actually come out. So it, there's a lot of unknown factor here, Robert, that makes it even harder to pick a game like this because we, we're pretty sure the Texans are going to be bad. But, you know, with Trevor Lawrence, we, we just don't know about the Jaguars. They, they could be the surprise team in the division or they could stink, you know, like they have been. So yeah, it makes it even harder to pick a game like this. I'm going to go back about a decade ago. I think it was about a decade ago, somewhere in that neighborhood. Remember the Texans opened up against the Jets and they faced a rookie quarterback. Was it Mark Sanchez or Matt Leinart or something? It was one of the USC guys that they faced. And you thought, oh, this is teed up. I mean, the Texans got a rookie quarterback to start the season. It's at home. You're going to win this game. You're going to tear him apart. And the Texans blew. Do you remember that game? Yeah, I believe that was Mark Sanchez. And so that that just you know accentuates the point that you know Trevor Lawrence could be the rookie of the year, the the surprise player of the year. Um, I, I mean, I'm not. I, I'm just. I'm, I'm still not sold on Urban Meyer being an NFL head coach. But, you know, that having been said, uh, he's he's trying to assemble the talent and we'll just see what happens when uh, they, they do face Jacksonville. But, yeah, it, it's going to be an interesting game to watch just from the unknown factor. The offense, you know, the one thing that you hope that they can figure out is how to run the football, because if you can run the football a little bit and you can kill some clock. And you got Laramie Tunsil, who, you know, whatever you want to say about how terrible a trade that was, he's still one of the best left tackles in the NFL. Uh, Titus Howard has shown a lot of potential wherever you've lined him up on the line. I don't know if he can be a good left guard, but, you know, he's big, he's mobile. You feel like it could be there for him. I think Justin Britt's going to be an upgrade over Nick Martin. You, you hope that Max Sharping figures it out over at, at right guard, which is it looks like where he's going to be placed. And then, you know, I don't know if it's going to be Charlie Heck or Cannon. I don't know if Cannon's going to be ready for for the first game. But at least with Mark and Marcus Cannon, you've got some veteran experience over there. So maybe you can get that running game going a little bit uh, with some better depth than they've had in years past. It seems like if one guy w- was horrible, Stephen, that you, you didn't have a second or third guy. We were like, oh, 
Now we got to depend on what Alfred Blue or somebody <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah, I was a little surprised that the Texans kept five running backs. I mean, that that was interesting, but they they certainly have the depth. But yeah, the running game has to come through, Robert, because who among the Texans wide receivers scares anybody? I mean, is Brandon Cooks going to scare anyone? You you don't have DeAndre Hopkins, you don't have Will Fuller, you, you've got injuries. You, you start you don't even have QT anymore to count on the speed. So the, the running game is going to have to come through. Unless somebody really steps up, at, you know, a wide receiver. But the biggest question marks, as you said, are the line. You know, Tunsil didn't even play during the preseason. What kind of shape is he going to be in? What's his timing going to be? You know, the, the same for the rest of the guys. But I, I did like the running game, and they did show some flashes that they could have ball control. But what it's going to take is that they're going to have to score points when they get in the red zone, and, and that's going to be the big issue. So... Yeah, the running game is going to have to come through if the Texans have any chance of having an, even a decent passing game. When I look at the other side of the ball, Lovey Smith should be able to confuse Trevor Lawrence. Uh, let's get back to that because, you know, Trevor Lawrence is going up against a guy in Lovey Smith that's been around the NFL a long time. I mean, he had a last few years he's in college, but, you know, this is a veteran guy. He knows how to confuse quarterbacks. You would think that Levy could do that. And they've looked good when they've not faced Tom Brady in the preseason. They've looked pretty good against some of the guys in the NFL that you're like, well, that guy's not ready to play yet. And he's a backup or he hasn't, you know, taken a lot of snaps. And so, you know, th that's the formula. That's it. That's how they're going to do it this, this week. Well, I can't believe I'm actually saying this, Robert, but I actually have more confidence right now at this very moment as we're recording this in the defense and not the offense. Now, who would have thought? Now, obviously, I'm attaching a lot of caveat to that because just based on what we saw in the preseason, yeah, they, they didn't look particularly good against Tom Brady, but and most defenses don't. Um, but I just, I like the, I like the intensity. I, I like what Lovey Smith has preached to these guys about takeaways because that was such a big problem last year for the Texans. I mean, a game can turn on a dime if you can get after it and make the big plays that they were making during the preseason. You know, I'm looking, I, I'm hoping for guys like Jacob Martin and Charles O'Minihue, you know, and some of these guys to have a breakout year. But I mean, at, at this moment, I'm really comfortable with where the defense is going. They still have a long way to go. But man, if, if they could just do some of that in the regular season, I think games will be a lot more entertaining and be a lot closer. And who knows? I mean, we might pull out a few more wins. All right, so let's get real here. Uh, should you lay some money with or against the Texans in their first game against the Jags with our friends at BetUS.com, Stephen? And the Texans are three-point dogs against the Jags. I want to get your thoughts on if you take the Texans' money in that situation or you take the Jags' money. What I'm going to put my money on here is the over-under 44.5. That means six touchdowns and a field goal is the over. I say take the under. That's just way too many points yeah. for these two teams. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm not I'm not going that high. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I don't get into the betting thing that much, but even I know uh, that's probably not a bet I want to make. Now you could probably make a lot of money if you win, but I'm not sure I'm willing to take that risk, Robert. I, I've got to pick the Jaguars in this. I'm I'm a little surprised that it's only three points, but it, it's probably just due to the fact, as we mentioned earlier, so many unknowns, but. No, I'm I'm definitely not taking that over. So what do you do if you want to put a bet down on this game? You go to BetUS. Do it with BetUS.com. 
uh, because you might as well find a sports book with integrity and longevity like BetUS. It's not just football. They take action on just about any sport. Hey, U.S. Open's going on right now. You got tennis as well. So if you have some ideas about what you want to do with that, you go to BetUS. They've been a pioneer in the sports book industry for almost three decades. They've got a diehard customer fan base. Their mobile platform is easy with full betting options. You just log on to BetUS.com or call 800-792-3887. That's 800-79-BETUS. And here's how we at Houston Sports Talk can save you a little bit of money. Because when you sign up, use our promo code HST125, Houston Sports Talk, the initials HST125. It's easy to remember. You can redeem a 125% sign-up bonus on your initial $100 deposit. So you do the math. We can help you out a little bit there. Again, that code HST125. And to help our podcast, sign up using either the BetUS link on our pinned post at the top of the Twitter page. So just click on that or go to our website, HoustonSportsTalk.net, and click on the BetUS icon. It should be easy to find. It's on the front page of the website. Follow my lead and get to your phone, get online, uh, find that social sports media betting partner with integrity and longevity like I did. BetUS, you bet. You win, you get paid. Hey, on the line with me is friend of the show and host of the Scott and Holman podcast, Dustin Rensick, his co-host Sam Raz, and Dustin's show is where you get all your Cougars coverage. And Dustin, it was a huge week for UH on and off the field, and let's start off with maybe the best thing to happen to the UH program in decades. What are your thoughts on the rumored move to the Big 12. Yeah, I'm excited. It was, I think, most Cougar fans, not their uh, their first choice of the P5 conference they would have preferred to join, but I think we're all pretty realistic at this point that uh, that other better invite wasn't necessarily coming. Um, and, you know, so just in terms of uh, the move from the American Athletic Conference to the Big 12, it's, it's clearly a step up, and it's the step up that Houston had been hoping for for, uh, obviously, many years and decades now. So... Yeah, I think there's definitely there's some in, there's some imperfections you can find. You know, obviously we, we would have preferred to join a conference that felt a little more whole and complete than one that was uh, shedding its two most valuable properties. Um, but you know, I think it's going to be a really fun football conference. It's a f- conference that's going to be you know competitive and I think just as good top to bottom as other conferences like the uh, the Pac-12 and the ACC. And I think it could be kind of fun being in a conference that doesn't really have you know one titan at the top of the conference that's just recruiting on a completely different level than everybody else um so i think you know it's going to be a really really competitive conference and uh, you know as a huge men's basketball fan that is going to be one of the best men's basketball conferences in the country um consistently just in a, a crazy number of uh, of competitive men's basketball teams in that conference so uh really really excited obviously a lot more excited than i am about the uh, the result from this past saturday's football game uh, so just looking past that and looking at the uh, the long term of joining the big 12 you know certainly some big questions re- remaining about that conference's uh long-term stability um but uh, for now at least uh, feels like a really exciting move for houston and one that uh, like you said had been you know something that houston fans have been waiting for for a long long time how soon could this happen what do you think yeah, so it looks like most of the reporting seems to indicate that it's going to happen by uh, summer of 2023 is kind of the uh, the target so that uh, basically Houston would have two football seasons left, this one and next football season. And then by the 2023 football season, they would be in the Big 12 Conference is kind of what it sounds like. And the American has a uh, a 27-month 
um, uh, transition period for uh, to uh, you know to notify the conference that you're leaving. So that would getting in there by the summer of 2023 would require um, you know some negotiation down from that uh, that timeline. So it might re- you know require a little bit more, a little bit of a higher exit fee than. Um, you know, what it would have been if Houston had waited the full 27 months. Um, but, you know, some of the reporting I've seen is indicating that uh, the Cougars are expecting to, you know, have their first Big 12, you know, TV rights payment be two to three times what their annual payment is in the American Athletic Conference. So if you can get in there and uh, start getting those uh, Big 12 uh, TV checks, that could maybe uh, help, help offset some of that uh that uh, that exit fee money and uh, you know there's still an outside chance i've seen a couple reporters talking about uh, that the uh, you know the the four new big 12 teams might actually get into the get into the conference before ut and ou leave of course those two schools are still talking up a big game at least that they're going to stay uh, hang around in the big 12 until the grant of rights expires in 2025 so uh, the potential of maybe even getting one random uh, zombie year where you've got 14 teams in the Big 12 and, uh, you know, maybe actually facing Texas and OU as conference rivals for uh, for a single season would be pretty, pretty entertaining and fun, um, but uh, would certainly take Houston in the Big 12, uh, even if uh, maybe those schools do hurry up their timeline and, uh, and decide to scoot before uh, before the new schools come in. Is there a matchup in the new and improved Big 12, we'll say improved Big 12, that you're looking forward to with the Cougars? I mean... Uh, in-state, Baylor, Texas Tech. What's the rivalry that you feel like could develop from out of this? Yeah, I think probably those the three in-state schools that you mentioned is probably going to be the uh, Houston's most likely target for their their biggest rivalries. And I think that's one of the big reasons why this is such an exciting move is that for an in-state rival, you're trading SMU for Texas Tech, TCU, and Baylor. And, uh, you know, and obviously I think that one of the really fun things is that there's some mutual dislike there already Houston fans I know are you know frustrated at those schools and Oklahoma State you can probably throw in there as well um, that you know when the last round of Big 12 realignment rumors were happening in 2016 that it was pretty well known that a lot of those schools didn't want U of H to come in they didn't want to compete against a, a U of H program that was on equal footing with them in terms of conference prestige when it came to recruiting um, so I think there's there's definitely some uh, some animus there and I think from from day one in that conference they're going to come in and you know, Houston fans loathe Baylor. They're going to be really up for that game. I, you know, as I, Baylor is maybe the the FBS school that I, I dislike the most. So it's going to be a lot of fun to uh, to play against them. Uh, TCU and Tech. You know, I don't think we have you know quite the animus there, but definitely you know there's there's some 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 historical rivalries there. So some of the older fans are going to be aware of that. Um, and then you know, Oklahoma State as well, a team that we've played a number of times uh, this century. Texas Tech, obviously, the same is true there. So you know, I, I think that's really one of the uh, the best things about this uh, this conference move is that you know joining the American there really wasn't very much in terms of natural rivalries. There was you, you kind of had the the you know Houston versus Dallas one with U of H versus SMU, um, but it was you know the the his, Houston's run in the American Athletic Conference has largely been you know defined on some level by trying to find who are your who are your conference rivals you know who are you actually going to you know who are these games that your fans are going to actually care about and really want to get up for and, and and really you know just badly want to beat some of these teams and the the American Athletic Conference definitely lacked that but i think all three of those in-state rivalries you know plus Oklahoma State is is definitely going to going to have a lot more juice in uh, in some of these games and i'm looking forward to that quite a bit i'm old enough to remember the old southwest conference so i remember U of H and Baylor and Texas Tech all playing each other. And that leads us right into what happened on Saturday where the Cougars were up on Texas Tech 21 to 7 at the half. This is a game that we might be seeing quite a bit in the near future. 
They get outscored 31 to nothing in the second half, though. And Clayton Toon, we got to talk about him, Dustin. Two touchdowns, four interceptions, 174 passing yards. Holgerson has gone all in with him in his early years at U of H. It doesn't look like a good decision. Yeah, it's uh, for certainly uh, if you're judging the 2021 season based on the first game, it's uh, pretty rough. The four interceptions. I mean, to be fair, one of those was, you know, a pass that hit a receiver in the hands and uh, and popped out. And one of those was, you know, a desperation time interception. But, um, you know, I think the 174 passing yards on 38 attempts, less than five yards per pass attempt is almost more you know, damning of, of, you know, Clayton Toon's game and the overall offensive game plan um, than, uh, than the interceptions maybe even are. Um, but, you know, I, I think the offense as a whole is Clayton Toon wasn't nearly good enough. And, you know, what we've been saying all offseason, really been saying since Clayton Toon first appeared, you know, first started playing games for the Houston Cougars at quarterback, what we've been saying is, well, the arm talent is there, the toughness is there, the leadership is there, his teammates believe in him, but the decision-making has a long way to go. And now in his you know, fourth year in the program, third year, you know, under Dana Holgerson as, you know, kind of the primary starter. It doesn't seem like the decision making has gotten any better. It was still, you know, the pick six was still just absolutely classic Clayton tune, you know, making just a bad decision and throwing the ball where it, uh, where it shouldn't have been. And, you know, the first interception, in the first half was, uh, was equally bad. And there was a couple that he, he got away with in this game where he made some, some bad decisions that got tipped down that might've, uh, could have gotten intercepted. So, you know, I think it's, it's very fair to, uh, to criticize the game that he had. And given, you know, all that, uh, the Dana Holgerson had been talking, you know, Clayton tune up in the off season and, you know, giving quotes and saying, Hey, if, uh, if he's not dramatically improved as a quarterback in year three of working with me, then I'm not coaching him very good. Well, I guess, I guess Dana Holgerson is not coaching him very good because he sure looks like the same, you know, poor decision-making Clayton tune that we've seen for the last couple of years. So, you know, it is, it is definitely concerning and it, and it, it kind of, you know, brings you all these questions like, okay, you know, Dana Holgerson has been here. This is his third year. Now Clayton tune hasn't shown anything on the field such that you would, you know, just necessarily have to hand him the starting job year after year. So, you know, why, why hasn't he looked for anyone else? Why hasn't he's hit? I, I, I think every single position other than quarterback and punter, we've recruited at least one starting caliber player through the transfer portal since Dana Holgerson got here. And it kind of just raises the question, well, why why haven't we brought in a quarterback to contend with Clayton Toon? And for the people, you know, there's a lot of Houston fans saying, oh, you got to bench this guy. Who else do we have? I mean, there's there's two freshmen on scholarship and then two, uh, two you know, walk-ons. And then uh, Daniel Holgerson has said that he felt that the most ready-to-play quarterback after Clayton Toon was the, the two walk-ons. And so it's just kind of like there's, there's just not – there's not even really – it doesn't seem like another – likely candidate on this roster to step in and and you know potentially be able to take over with Clayton Toon makes the game against Texas Tech look like it's going to be indicative of his uh, his season as a whole this year so it, it it raises just absolutely lots of questions and and kind of makes you wonder if this is if this is what Clayton Toon still looks like in year three of working with Dana Holgerson then you know why haven't they gone out there and tried to find uh, another candidate to play the quarterback position yeah I'm gonna get back to Holgerson in just a second but uh going Past Clayton Toon on offense, it didn't look a whole lot better with the running game. Some ugly numbers, 77 yards on 35 carries. Mobile car, 13 carries for 37 yards, only 2.8 yards per carry. What is going on with the running game? Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of the, the same old, same old. And that's, I think, the offensive line, you can really level a lot of the criticisms that you did of Clayton Toon. It's the third year of this, you know, trying to put together an offensive line that's been remotely, you know, passable and it's, it's just you know injuries have played a lot of a uh, huge role in that the last couple of years 
under Dana Holgerson. But I mean, you can't really blame last night on that. You had you had your your five starting offensive linemen that you felt you know comfortable with heading into uh, heading into the season. It wasn't like there was you know a bunch of injuries that put you to your backups for this game. You had the, you had the five guys that you wanted, and uh, and like you said, it was you know less than two and a half yards of carry as a team. Um, just really nothing got going in the uh, the run game at all. And, you know, and the Clayton, too, in the first half, it felt like he had the most, you know, the cleanest pockets to throw out of that he's had since he got here. And then the second half, that kind of uh, reverted as well. And he started getting more, you know, quick pressure on him and was doing the more of uh, the scrambling for his life. So Clayton, too, certainly going to get the uh, the majority of the blame, as tends to happen for quarterbacks after a uh, poor offensive performance. Um, but, you know, you got to raise some huge questions about that offensive line as well. And like I said, the first the first quarter, the first half, it was it was so encouraging. Houston had the, you know, the three fourth and shorts where all three times in the first half, they just kind of easily bulldozed forward and got the, you know, half a yard, yard and a half, whatever it was that they needed. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is this is a this is a different, you know, Cougar team. They're able to get the short yardage, at least, you know, if not breaking the long runs in the running game, at least getting some uh, getting some short yardage plays going for them and and keeping Clayton tune, uh, you know, clean. And then the second half, it just kind of uh, all fell apart as Texas Tech's defensive front was, you know, just just dominant in that matchup. So, like I said, Clayton too, not the only position where definitely some uh, fair to ask some big questions after after week one against the Texas Tech defense. That is, I mean, they might be average. They might be slightly above average. This isn't a top 25 defense. I don't think it's a top 50 defense nationally. So it's not like you played, you know, Alabama or something. And then your offensive line was looking super shaky. You played a average to above average defense and uh, with your full complement of healthy offensive linemen and still uh, didn't have a lot going. So I think uh, the offensive line really as an entire unit has uh, plenty of questions to answer after this one. Now let's go to the other side of the ball and defensively, the Cougars gave up 376 yards total one turnover. What stuck out for you on that side? You know, I, I think if you're looking for some positives to take away from this game, Texas Tech's offensive line is very veteran and has a lot of, you know, really talented guys, a couple of guys that could play at the next level. Um, so I think the fact that Houston's defensive front was able to get some some pressure on Tyler Shuck during this game uh, was really encouraging. And there was, you know, they got three sacks on them. You know, there were some downs when, you know, Houston was rushing four guys and dropping seven and still getting some uh, some pressure on Shuck. Um, but, you know, the run game as a whole didn't uh, didn't really um, hold up through the the course of the game, and then you know the the pressure that they got on Shuck just wasn't enough because uh, Eric Ezekama, who's you know again he's a he's an NFL caliber wide receiver, was unfortunately just uh, you know torching Houston quite a bit in this game as well. So you know the defense, you know I'll give them some credit. You know I said before the game if they could hold uh, Texas Tech to to 30 points or fewer, I think that that would be a uh, an impressive performance. And I think if you you know you subtract the seven that is the pick six, that certainly that's not on the defense. You know and then. You know, other than the, the 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 kind of you know garbage time touchdown when the game was already out of reach, you know, up to that point, Houston had allowed 24 Texas Tech points from the actual Houston defense. So, you know, I, I think you can give them maybe a a B B plus type performance. I think they really there was some some good things on display. Um, you know, it wasn't a, a dominant defensive performance for sure. There were some definitely some area some errors, um, but yeah, I, I don't think you can really complain. I think if you hold. Texas Tech, to, like I said, 24 offensive points scored through, you know, the majority of the game. This is going to be, you know, an above average Texas Tech offense. It's going to be a pretty good Texas Tech offense this year, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's definitely some positives you can take away from the defense. But yeah, I wouldn't say it was so overwhelmingly positive that I'm just, you know, raving about it afterwards. There was definitely some stuff. The run game, you know, Taj Brooks averaging almost nine yards a carry. That's that's certainly a concern. Eric has a comma going off. 
Uh, that's certainly a concern. Um, but you know, coming into the season, I felt like the defense was the unit that I had more confident in uh, that I would more confidence in uh, on Houston. And uh, I would certainly not change that assessment after after the first game, although maybe that says more about the struggles that the offense had than uh, how the defense played necessarily. I saw some really poor tackling, though. There was that one drive where they got just bulldozed a couple of times and a couple of big plays resulted. And I mean, that's again, you want to go back to coaching a little bit. That's that's what you're talking about there. Yeah, that, that the, the one is a comment. And again, he had a huge game, 179 yards. And, you know, I think if there was there was that one play where they threw him a little screen pass and about three or four Houston guys all put a hit on him all at the same time and no one wrapped him up. And then he ended up running for like 40 or 50 yards. Yeah, yeah. I, I think if. I think if you put that play aside, I think, honestly, I'm not too upset with the job that they did on Ezekama. He is a really, really good receiver who will be playing in the NFL next year. And he made some ridiculous catches in this one that at some point you kind of just have to uh, to tip your cap and say, yeah, he's a really good player who made a really good play there. Um, but, yeah, there definitely were some instances. And that, that one little screen pass to Ezekama in particular, uh, I think, kept me up last night. <laughs> just thinking, oh, man, like, you know, if they could have tackled him there, that, that drive looked like it was maybe they were going to get a you know three and out there. And instead, all of a sudden, you know, Texas Tech is in the red zone and put it in. So uh, definitely, like I said, wasn't a, an A-plus defensive performance by any stretch, but I think there's more positives that you can at least kind of find to take away than uh, an offensive performance that was pretty woeful all around after the first quarter. All right, let's get to Dana Holgerson because I think that's going to be the story as the season unfolds. And from an offensive perspective, Holgerson said, quote, that was one of the worst halves I've ever been a part of. I admit it. I own it. We'll work hard on trying to fix it. But Dustin we got to get real on this guy. And I, I wasn't exactly excited about his hiring in seven seasons in a nothing special big 12. He was six games over 500 in his conference games. He's seven and 14 overall at U of H and it's about to get a little bit harder. Assuming they moved to the big 12. Yeah, I think, I mean, if this is, you know, like I said, the big 12 is going to be a, a really top to bottom competitive, fun football conference, but you know, Texas tech doesn't, you know, I think Texas Tech can be competitive in the in a you know OU and UT list Big Twelve, but that's they're not going to be the belt cow of the conference certainly. So to be losing a uh, de facto home game, although you know certainly the moving the game to NRG takes away some of that on campus you know home field advantage. Um, but yeah, having had uh, you know the chance to play with again year three, you got your full strength team that you want to put out there, and to still be you know, losing, you know, pretty decisively to uh, to a team that gives you a pretty good indication of what you're going to face week in and week out in the Big 12. Uh, no, it's it's definitely fair to have uh, a lot of concerns about uh, about what Dana Holgerson is doing. And this is, you know, we've been saying it all offseason. This is the no excuses year. Um, you know, we're, we're willing to kind of write off the last couple of years for all the different, you know, issues that he's been dealing with and the, the hand that he was dealt in terms of the, you know, lack of talent on the roster when he got here. Uh, but this is the roster he wants to have. And this is, you know, this is, this year is going to be as good an indication as any of, you know, what we can expect to see from Dana Holgerson. And I, you know, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, absolutely just fire the guy after, uh, after one game, I think we will, you know, wait and see what the rest of the year holds. Um, but if this game is an indication of where the season is going, then I think we're going to very quickly get to the point where we're asking ourselves if, uh, you know, if, if Houston has enough money to uh, to make him go away, then certainly, you know, the COVID season is, I think, putting a bit of a crimp on everybody's finances and will maybe make some schools, you know, less quick to uh, to pull the trigger on some of those uh, firings than they maybe uh, would have been. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if you're heading to the Big 12, you got that Big 12 TV money coming in. 
Um, you don't want to uh, you don't want to go into the Big 12 with a uh, football coach who looks like, you know, maybe his uh, his best days of coaching are behind him. And I think it's probably, you know, fair to make that criticism of uh, of Holgo at this point. Doesn't help when you put out bulletin board material and it all backfires <laughs> on you. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, he's been he's been, he's been, he's been giving all the quotes that uh, that you don't you, we're going to wreck tech. You know, if uh, if Clayton Toon's not dramatically improved, I'm not a very good coach. I mean, he is he is writing his own uh, death certificate in terms of his his tenure at U of H and some of the uh, the stuff he's been saying in public. He's got to write it pretty quickly because, you know, we talk about rivals in the Big 12 and not not a, not a rivalry in terms of, oh, this is a, a big yearly rivalry, but you, you got to beat Rice, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a genuinely concerning game. If you watched Rice's opening game against Arkansas, they, they did some really good things. And they, against an SEC opponent on the road, um, kept that game really competitive. I think Rice does still have some huge question marks at quarterback, but that's probably a fair thing to say about Houston as well heading into this game. So, you know, as much as the fan base is uh, asking when is basketball season and, uh, you know, how much of a buyout does this guy have in his contract now? Uh, man, a week from now, if uh, if Houston loses to Rice, that stuff is only going to be magnified. And as much as, you know, I, I think he's got, you know, one foot in the grave in terms of his uh, U of H tenure at this point, you know, maybe he goes, you know, nine and two the rest of the way and, and kind of writes that ship or something. But uh, yeah, certainly a loss to uh, to Rice next week, which feels entirely conceivably possible given, you know, the state of these two programs right now. Uh, I think that would be the absolute, uh, you know, the, the last strand of hope that Dana Holgerson is holding on to in terms of having this fan base not completely check out on him is going to uh, be well gone if uh, if we lose to Rice the next week, which I can't uh, at all guarantee will not happen. Is there a certain amount of wins that you're looking for for him, you know, to continue as the U of H coach moving forward, uh, number one? And number two, uh, do you feel like that it's not just about maybe the wins, but how they look? Is it a, you know, sort of, you know, what what the uh, form and function of, of a U of H team looks like this year. And, you know, are, are the wins dramatic or are they just, well, you should have beat that guy? Yeah, I, I think really eight to nine wins has to be the absolute minimum for Houston this year. And, you know, Houston famously is the, the school that fires coaches for eight and four. And, you know, I think given the schedule that Houston is facing this year, eight to nine wins should be the absolute minimum. I mean, if you want to talk about Houston having a, a rough, week one uh two teams on houston's schedule lost to fcs opponents in week one and four more lost games to fbs opponents where they were just completely and thoroughly dominated from start to finish on a much more dramatic level than the loss that uh that houston finished so or that houston had this week so there are plenty of cupcakes on this schedule uh texas tech for being a uh, probably an average just slightly above average team easily one of the best you know three teams on Houston's schedule this year, nonetheless. So there's really no excuse to do anything less than beat up the rest of the schedule. And even if you are a team that's not as good as Texas Tech, you should still be able to comfortably be a bowl eligible team this year. But I mean, you look at the last head coach and uh, and Major Applewhite, they they ran him off for winning eight games against a schedule that just as easy and just as cupcake filled as the one that Houston is facing right now. And I think it's it's unfair to compare uh, Major Applewhite's last couple of seasons to Dana's first couple of seasons because the difference in the strength of schedule quality was so dramatically different between what those two guys were facing. But this is absolutely the type of schedule that Houston fired Major Applewhite for winning eight games against. So if you know Dana Holgerson is even even eight game, even if he's eight and four, you know I I, I think you're going to have huge questions about that because that's 
that basically means you, you maybe won the six games against the six teams you should absolutely, you know, unquestionably, you know, beat and then had a losing record against uh, everybody else. So that would not be even an eight and four season, I don't think at this point would be all that encouraging. Um, so really, you know, I think nine wins for me personally would be the, you know, if, if he goes nine and two the rest of the way, I would say, okay. I'm comfortable giving him another year. He, you know, clearly put the tech game behind him and and got the team righted and and playing well for the rest of the year. Um, but man, even an eight and four season, I feel like is is going to be, you know, and again, it's, it's you don't know what those eight wins are going to look like, but it's hard to pin three more losses onto this team given the quality of opponent that they're facing, and still be able to imagine that at the end of the year that anyone's going to feel good about where this program is at. So it's definitely time to start uh, winning games in bunches. Yeah, it's uh, it's do or die, I think, for, for Holgerson, if they can indeed afford to move on from him. And uh, before I let you go, I want to get uh, what's going on in the podcast and anything new going on over there. And also, I mean, I, I know you guys are excited about U of H volleyball this year. Yeah, Cougar volleyball, uh, 6-0 and on the season. Um, they've uh, really, it's, it's a pretty dramatic uh, turnaround. It was a program that uh, when the head coach, the new head coach, David Rare is entering his third season when he took over, this was a, a program that was just not competitive at the conference level. And it's still a program that hasn't been to the NCAA tournament since the year 2000. And we really think that the volleyball program is going to, uh, is going to turn that around this year and is going to get back to the NCAA tournament and has got just a lot of really exciting players. So it is, it's a sport that's near and dear to my heart. When I first got to campus at U of H, one of the first things I did was I volunteered to be a ball boy for the, uh, the volleyball program. And I was one of those guys, you know, running the balls and during the games and stuff like that. So it's, it's a program that I've always kept a, a close eye on, but they got a lot of, a lot of televised matches, uh, televised matches on ESPN Plus this year. So if you're looking for a Houston team playing this fall that is uh, pretty exciting and going to win a lot of their uh, their matches, you know, maybe you don't want to tune into Cougar football. Maybe Cougar volleyball is uh, is the way to go. Cougar soccer off to a pretty good start to this season as well. So you look at all the other sports besides football, uh, there's a lot to like at the moment. Uh, but yeah, in terms of the podcast, we're still, you know, putting out the, uh, the content. We're going to record an episode tonight where we're going to talk about the Texas Tech loss and really just uh, gush at length about how excited we are about the uh, the Big 12 news. Um, so we've got that coming up. Um, and then, yeah, just not to, uh, I, you know, we're already kind of uh, looking forward to, uh, to Cougar basketball season. So before long, uh, we'll have some Cougar men's basketball previews to do and uh, get, to, get to get to Houston's uh, Houston's good program and uh, put this uh, football football nonsense behind us maybe. As we remind everybody, every time you come on, it's the best place to get your Houston Cougar content and everything that's going on and all of Houston Cougar nation, all the sports and everything like that. Always fun to have you on, Dustin. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Robert. Always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, go Cougs. All right, let's bring back in my co-host Steven and talk a little bit about a couple of other things that happened in college football this weekend and the Aggies got a win to start the season, but Steven, your Longhorns, we got to talk about them because Steve Sarkeesian makes his debut as the Longhorns head coach. We're wondering what we're going to see from this team. New quarterback, some new stuff going on over there. They, they get the W to begin the season. Yeah, there's a lot of excitement here in Austin, Robert, where I live. Uh, you know, this has been anticipated, obviously, for quite some time. And, you know, the biggest discussion that has been had with the Longhorns over the last few weeks, well, even before summer workouts started, was who was going to be the starting quarterback and the, the big competition. Man, you talk about, I, I mean, the, you wish the Texans had a, a quarterback controversy or a, co a competition anyway <laughs> that uh, the Longhorns had between Casey Thompson 
you know, who came in the bowl game last year and really lit things up. And then the redshirt freshman, Hudson Card. Well, Steve Sarkeesian gave it to Hudson Card. It was a close race throughout camp, and he came through. I mean, I, I was really impressed for, for him being his first game. I think the biggest thing that jumped out at me, Robert, was his poise. And he was under pressure a lot. I mean, he got sacked, I think, three times just in the first half. So the offensive line's got to step it up a little bit. He was, you know, under the gun quite a bit. But the way he handled it and some of the darts he was throwing, you know, he, he threw some inaccurate passes, no doubt about it. But he was throwing some darts, and he really had to. I, I just, I like the look of him. I, I like the way the defense played. I, I think that, you know, the biggest thing for me with Hudson Card is that, you know, he had no turnovers. Uh, he threw a couple touchdowns, ran for another so, yeah, there, there's a lot of excitement in Austin, but, of course, there's a long way to go, and it's going to be a lot different when the, the Longhorns travel from their next game to Arkansas, who, as we know, uh, beat Rice over the weekend also. So you're telling me that the Longhorn fans do, that can be a little bit persnickety and they can be a little bit difficult, they, they liked what they saw from the first game. They, they didn't have any major complaints at this point with the new era? No. And you know what? Compared to the very first games that Tom Herman coached, that Charlie Strong coached, the results were a whole lot different. Because if you may, you may remember on both of those instances, uh, they, they got beat and they didn't look good at all. So, you know, if you, if you want to compare <laughs> to the last two head coaches before Steve Sarkeesian, uh, yeah, there's a lot of smiles in Austin right now. I'm guessing maybe the Longhorn fans might have noticed that number 10, North Carolina, coached by a certain guy named Mac Brown, lost their first game against Virginia Tech. <laughs> yeah, they certainly did. And, and I mean, there was a lot of things like, you know, Oklahoma almost lost to uh, Tulane and, you know, A&M. I mean, yeah, they won fairly handily if you look at the score, but it took them a while to get going. Of course, they're starting with a new quarterback as well. So, I don't remember. I, I want to say it was the Chronicle or it was someone that actually ranked the Aggies as number one, you know, as far as Texas teams go this week. I'm not sure I agree with that, Robert. I, I think the Longhorns should be number one. The Aggies should be number two. But anyway, that having been said, uh, the Longhorns won, the Aggies won. Uh, so yep, a lot of happy faces right now. But, you know, there's a long way to go. And as I said, things can change on a dime. Certainly with Longhorn fans, they could get beat by Arkansas and <laughs> they would be having a totally different discussion next week. And just so people know, I mean, if, if you don't follow college football a ton, the Raging Cajuns, they're no joke. They were top 25. They beat a top 25 team. Right. That's exactly it. They beat a top 25 team, whereas, uh, you know, the Aggies had to kind of uh, wait for the engine to warm up a little bit before they got going against Kent State. So, but, you know, I mean, a lot of these non-conference teams – or what the quote-unquote lesser teams, they've been giving you know some of the major Division One powerhouses some problems over the years. I mean, you can think of a number of upsets that we could go through. So, you know, anything can happen. That's what's so cool about the first weekend of college football. And I have to tell you, Robert, I just I'm more excited right now about college football than I am about the start of the NFL season. And it doesn't even just have to do with the Texans. It's just the overall product. I I just I'm finding myself turning more and more to watching college football than watching NFL. UCLA upsets LSU. Uh, you also had the Clemson Tigers. The the powerful Clemson Tigers went down this weekend against Georgia. So there were some really interesting results for the first weekend. And you mentioned the OU game. I mean, give Tulane a ton of credit. I mean, with everything that was going on in New Orleans, 
you know, Ida and and the damage that it was done, and and they're, the game's thrown over there where you know they 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 don't get to play where they were supposed to play that game. And I got to give a shout out to Lainey Fritz, uh, former Channel Two reporter, sports reporter, uh, weekend anchor. Her dad did a hell of a job to get that game as close as it was, and they, they almost beat the Sooners. Yeah, they certainly did. It, it was really scary there, especially toward the end. And it was an inspirational story. I mean, you you, you like to see that sort of thing. Um, you know, but that having all been said, some things never change. Uh, Alabama, they, they may change players year after year after year, but the results are still the same. I, I mean, I, I figured they would beat Miami, but as handily as they did, yeah, I wasn't so sure about that. So, uh, yeah, some things will never change. I guess Alabama is uh, still just going to keep rolling right on through. All right, well, let's move to this week in Astros history. We've got so much going on with the Astros present, but there's always some great stuff, especially, you know, this time of year with Astros history because, you know, these were some big games going back, you know, decades that, that happened over the past uh, 50 years, 60 years. Oh, yes. Let me tell you, the, the toughest thing about doing this every week, Robert, and it's a good problem to have, believe me, I'm not complaining, is figuring out, you know, what what I have to leave out, you know, because there's so much good stuff here. I can't mention it all. So, you know, the, the biggest challenge for me this week is I actually had to take a couple of things out that I really wanted to mention just because there were other things that I felt took some priority. There were some wacky things that happened this week in Astros history. But there were some pretty cool things, too. And the first cool thing happened on September 1st, 2019. You know, last week we talked about the fact that the Astros got Justin Verlander in that August 31st end of the wire trade deadline in 2017. Well, on September 1st of 2019, Verlander threw his third no-hitter. It came against the Toronto Blue Jays, and he struck out 14 batters through 120 pitches in that no-hitter with the Astros beating the Blue Jays. And believe it or not, I believe it was in 2011, Robert, Justin Verlander, his second no-hitter was also against the Toronto Blue Jays. So how about that? Well, the big thing there, just to circle back around to what we started off talking with the Astros, was uh, Abraham Toro was the hero of that game, the guy that you know, the Seattle Mariners are really excited about right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he provided the only run support that uh, Verlander had, what was it, two to nothing, was uh, the final in that, and it was Abraham Toro, and it came in, guess what, Robert, the late innings. Yeah, that, that's something the Astros could certainly take some lessons from. But, yep, quite a memory, Believe hard to believe, it was already two years ago that that took place. But uh, Justin Verlander with his third no-hitter, and we could use, as you said earlier, off the top, we could use some of that right now. Where are you, JV? You said you would be back by the end of the year. Where are you at? Uh, we need to give him that they should have when they did surgery they should have just replaced his whole arm with a bionic one you know so that he could have come back and (laughs) got started all right on august 31st 1990 the astros fans got a little upset with a trade that was made and that trade was relief pitcher larry anderson going to the boston red sox for some no-name third base prospect by the name of Jeff Bagwell. How'd that turn out, Robert? You know what? A lot of people say, oh, that was the terrible trade by the Red Sox. You know, what are they doing? Um, and, and, and again, I'm reminded of this Toro trade. You just never know what's going to happen with a prospect. And Larry Anderson, 
you said the Astros fans were upset about it. I don't remember specifically because I think I had skipped town. I was off to college around that point. But Larry Anderson was a guy that was good with the Astros. He was a really good reliever. He had a great slider. He was a dependable bullpen arm. I, I loved Larry Anderson with the Astros. And the fact that they gave him up for Jeff Bagwell wasn't as bad as it sounds like right now. Because, like I said, Larry Anderson with the Astros was really solid. If you look at his numbers, his ERA was like 204, 319, but for the most part, it was good. And he had some good years with Philadelphia and some other teams over that time, but he he was a solid guy. He was a a real good bullpen pitcher for a lot of seasons. In total, 17 years in Major League Baseball, he had a 315 ERA. Here's what I think precipitated a, a lot of the emotion of that trade is that, you know, not long before that, the Astros traded Billy Doran, and that you talk about upsetting fans with that one. Oh yeah, that that was something that really got the the dander up with the fans. So you know you follow that uh, not too long after that with a trade of Larry Anderson, who, as you mentioned, was very good with the Astros. Uh, you know, for for a prospect that I remember when the trade was made. You know, Jeff Bagwell, believe it or not, was very highly touted. I mean, a lot of people were excited to get him, but obviously <laughs> there was a lot of unknown. Because I, I can't remember if he was in double A, single. I mean, he, he wasn't like on the cusp. He wasn't quite ready yet, but he was getting there. But there was still a lot of excitement surrounding him. And obviously, it's easy to look back now and say, wow, what a great trade that was. But at the time it was made, you know, certainly there were a few people that were not very happy that the Astros gave up such a, a great reliever in Larry Anderson for such an unproven product. but And don't forget with the Red Sox that they basically said, Jeff Bagwell's the third baseman. We got this guy named Wade Boggs. He's pretty yeah. darn good. He was, you know, rolling up all-stars and and, and and just batting titles one after the other. And, and here you got Jeff Bagwell, who's the third baseman. And the Astros said, well, he could be a first baseman too. Let's just move him over there. <laughs> well, yeah, isn't it amazing how things turn out uh, that several years later, he, he goes from third base to first base. So in more ways than one, boy, that trade really worked out uh, for both teams, but especially the Astros, if you're talking about longevity. Well, on September 1st, 1987, Robert, hold on, we got a ride here. Billy Hatcher is ejected for using a corked bat in a loss to the Chicago Cubs. Now, Hatcher claimed the bat actually belonged to an Astros reliever, this guy by the name of Dave Smith. Remember him? <laughs> well, it didn't matter because Hatcher still got a 10-game suspension for his corked bat. And you just thought the Astros 2017 cheating scandal was the first one that the Astros were accused of cheating, huh? No, it goes uh, back to even before that. You go back to Mike Scott and <laughs> that's uh, right. you go back to Joe Necro. Was it, wasn't Joe Necro on the mound once when some sandpaper slipped out of his glove and yep. they found it? Yep, that was him. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the cheating scandal of 2017 obviously is the biggest, but uh, no, there were some things going on back then. You mentioned Mike Scott, but in this case, it was in 1987, the corked bat that Billy Hatcher had. And, uh, you know, the Astros ended up losing to the Chicago Cubs anyway, but uh, that's another day in this uh, day in Astros history. You think that was wacky? Let's go back to 1971 on September 2nd. Cesar Cedeno, he comes to the plate with the bases loaded. The Astros are losing to the LA Dodgers three to two. Cedeno hits a blooper into shallow right field 
Bill Buckner and Jim Lefevre converge on the ball. They collide, and the ball goes all the way into the corner. Cedeno goes all the way around the bases for a 170-foot inside the park grand slam, <laughs> and the Astros go on to win 9-3. I mean, you talk about outrageous, Robert. Now, Cesar Cedeno, you, you talk about stealing bases. He was the man as far as the Astros franchise when it came to stealing bases, but that is pretty crazy. So you're telling me that something really odd happened with Bill Buckner late in a game that yeah. shouldn't have maybe happened? Yeah, that play certainly gets dwarfed by what happened to Bill Buckner in 1986. But yeah, it just seems that Bill Buckner is on the wrong end of a lot of things. And it comes in 1971, you know, a long time ago. So yeah, I, that was the first thing I thought of when I read this, Robert. I was like, oh, poor Bill Buckner. He just can't, he can't catch a break. What else do you got? Well, we got uh, one more thing here, and that is pretty wacky, too. It was on September 1st. Uh, September 1st just seems to be, a, I guess, a crazy day in Astros history. But this was in 1964, so this was before the Astros themselves, I mean, when they changed the name. The Colt 45s had trouble leaving their hotel in Philadelphia, and it's all because a local radio station falsely claimed that the Beatles were staying there. At the hotel. Well, the team finally gets past the mob. They go to the game, but they lose to the Phillies 4-3. to three. And, oh, by the way, the Phillies score all four of their runs on solo home runs. So, yeah, not a great night in Colt 45's history. Boy, if, if the Colt 45's were recognized, period, they would have been excited. But uh, for them to be recognized like they thought they were the beat i mean I, i'm i'm guessing we're, we're talking about mobs of fans steven that were just outside screaming <laughs> yeah well i mean they were they were just they were waiting because they thought the beatles were there so uh, you know the team couldn't even get to the team bus to get <laughs> to go to the game so yeah that, that's pretty crazy and it was of course it was a false report the beatles were not there um but uh, the colt 45s yeah they got kind of caught up in that and you know because of the beatles even though they had nothing to do with it uh they were they barely could get to the game on time. Help. I need somebody help. Not just any, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my, my best Beatles, but yeah, that, that's probably what they were saying when they were trying to get <laughs> to the bus. Well, and then help. I need somebody. We need better players. Cause you know, the Astros in the sixties or the Colt 45s, they weren't very good back then. So yeah. Uh, even being held back from the game, uh, they still couldn't win once they got there and you know, four solo home runs. That's what it took to beat them. So I, I guess I got to ask our our audience here: Do you do you like this week in Astros history? Are you enjoying it? Let us know. You can always uh, get in touch with us. Uh, info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. That's the email address. Uh, I got to wrap it up though for this one by reminding everybody that this show is brought to you by BetUS.com, America's favorite sports book. When you use it, use the code HST125 to redeem a 125% sign-up bonus on your initial $100 deposit. If you forget. Look for the promo code in the show description. And to help our podcast, sign up using either the BetUS link on our pinned Twitter post at the top of our page or go to the website, HoustonSportsTalk.net. You know our website. Click on BetUS on the right side of the page. or Just look for the logo. You'll find it. It's easy to find. But until next time, everybody, stay healthy and safe. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk.
Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.